Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, we get the Torah this week, and uh, the Medr says that in, in Shir Shirim Rabbah, it, it explains that, that, that when God gave the Torah, that they were the, the, the kisses from his mouth. And so I wondered, like, can you, can you kiss God? I don't, I don't know if you can kiss God, but you can kiss his kisses. So, like, if you, if you kiss a Torah book, kiss another human being, you're, you're actually you're kissing his kisses, right? So it's close. It's close. It's good. It's good. Um, I, want to, um, I want to talk about something that I... I, I feel like it's so um, important because I think there's such a mass misconception about it and it's so central to our lives. And that's the idea of um, belief in God. And and I just want to just kind of try to lay it out and we'll just kind of collect a lot of the things that we've been talking about and hopefully put them in a bit of a more sort of like um, organized framework. Um, but the, the main thing that I want to suggest is to dispel what I think is a tremendous uh, inaccuracy, um, which is the following. I think people think that, that the definition of believing in God is to believe in the existence of a power which they call God. In other words, in other words one could, according to this definition, believe in God, and by their own definition, believe that God is this horribly malevolent force. And yet, they absolutely believe in God. I believe in this God who is really trying to kill me. And somehow I've just dodged so many bullets over the years. I have stayed one step ahead of God, you know, due to my tremendous brilliance and ninja-like you know, abilities. You know, which, which is absurd. The whole, the whole concept of that is absurd. So what I'm, what I'm trying to suggest, or what, what it's important for us to understand, is that to believe in God, it's not enough to just believe that there is a power that we call God. That is not, according to Judaism, according to Torah, called belief in God. Belief in God actually requires something much, much more. So what, it, what, what does it require? I'm just talking on a belief level right now, just conceptually. It, it requires that one understands that the, the God that they believe in is good. The God that they believe in loves them. And that the God who they believe in has a plan for them. God is good. God loves you, and God has a plan for you. And God most certainly knows you exist. He's sustaining you. And here's all of your prayers. That, 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 if a person has that, then they believe in God the way the Torah presents God. So, so again, just because I think this really cuts to the heart of so much of the problems of the world today and so much of the misunderstanding is that then you say, well, wait a second. What about hardship? What about suffering? What about all these other things? If, if, if God is all-powerful and everything comes from God, 
then how do you account for this tragedy and this crisis? All fantastic questions. But all, if I, if you'll allow me the brazenness to say it, all kind of like subheadings under this initial category. And some of those subheadings, suffering in general, will be able to grasp aspects of, reasons for aspects of, some will never be able to understand. But remember, you know, we just celebrated the, observed the, the Kutzker Rebbe's site yesterday. The Kutzker Rebbe famously said, I would never worship a God I understood. Right? Because if you understand God, then you're the same as God. So then what do you need God for? Right? In other words, the very definition of, of God means that it's something, a power greater than you. A power that made you. So to have the expectation that God therefore should function according to your expectations or is limited by your the, the parameters that you put around him and the definitions that you put around him is silly. I mean, it's very human, but if you think it through, it's, it's just silly. Okay. So now, I want to get into one particular point. But, but again, I just want to review this because I, just, I feel like this is like a, a, a mountainous thought that's with us every single day. Okay? And I'll tell you, just again, you all know it, but let's just hear it again because it just artic- articulates it very well. Classic Hasidic story. person goes to a Rebbe and says, you know, I don't believe in God for this reason, and I don't believe in God for that reason, and I don't believe in God for this reason, and I don't believe in God for that reason. And the Rebbe says, you know what? I also don't believe in God. And the person shocked and says, Rebbe, you don't believe in God? And he goes, yeah, the God you don't believe in, I also don't believe in. Right? So, so, in other words, in other words, let's just make sure that we, we, we define our terms. I, I had a, an interesting experience with someone, someone who I was close to and he was coming closer to Torah and he was able to, he had the privilege of having lunch with um, uh, Rav Noach Weinberg, uh, the, the, the founder and, and leader of, of uh, Asia Torah. And, and he, he asked him, he said, you know, what should I do in this, this, this period of my life when I'm, you know, I'm not quote-unquote observant, but I, you know, I love it and I want it, but I'm, I'm not there yet. So, you know, that's a very big question. And he's asking one of the great people of our, of our generation. And listen to the answer he gave him, because it's a very surprising answer. He said, he said you should be very careful to define your terms. Right? Meaning to say, like, and I, I, that, that's the part that I remember him saying, but I, this is what I understood him to mean. So this is me talking, but I think this is what he meant. Like, for instance, you're in this sort of in-between place right now. Define success. Everybody wants to be a success, but, but define success. Define success. You know, there's so many people... I remember my father, Elavishalom. My father was a therapist. He practiced, you know, he's a practicing psychologist for 50 years. And I remember he told me this story one time. He was sitting with a woman, 
and he, this woman wanted to get married, and he asked her, what, what, what kind of qualities are you looking for in a, in, 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 you know, in a prospective uh, husband? And she said, well, he should be cultured, and he should be rich, and he should be, you know, very intelligent, and she was going on and on. And my father said, what about a mensch? What about being a good person? And she said, oh, I took that for granted. He's like, no, 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 <laughs> you know, you don't take that for granted. Not only don't you take that for granted, you begin there. You actually begin there, right? So what is what actually is success? How are we defining success? Like a lot of times we think, okay, well, success, at least by American definition, is basically you can you can just stop after the word money. <laughs> you can start and stop after money, right? But but let's think it through for a moment. That assumes that with that money comes health. Who says? We, we, we assume with that money comes happiness. Who says? We, we, we assume with that money comes um, spiritual fulfillment. Who really says that? I mean, it could absolutely be the opposite of that. You know, it could take you to every unspiritual place. So all of a sudden you go, well, wait a second. So maybe, maybe, I, maybe money isn't the be-all and, def- and, and, and end-all definition of success. If it doesn't include happiness, if it doesn't include health, if it doesn't include friends, if it doesn't include spiritual fulfillment. So, so, so why is that important? Because once you define your terms, you are able to set goals. And then those goals will dictate the decisions that you make. In terms of life, what kind of job that you want? What kind of relationship do you want? What kind of community do you want to live in? All these things then stem from that. So it was a very, it was a very brilliant, very wise thing that Rav Noach said. Define, define your terms. Okay? So, uh, so I think that when it comes to what does it mean to believe in God? What does belief in God mean? Well, that's absolutely something that we, we, mu- we must define. We must define. And we must get past this incredibly shallow, criminally, criminally superficial definition that belief in God means, I believe, in the existence of a, of a great power. So that's a horribly inadequate definition of God. Horribly inadequate. Horribly inadequate slash ignorant. So, so again, let, with, with that in mind, with that in mind, let's just kind of review the highlights. God is good. We believe God is good. You must understand that. And, and again, just to review just, just one of the most salient points. It says in in, in the Psalms of King David, taste and see that God is good. Right? So what does that mean? So the way I understand it, just is, you know, look, look at all the flavors in the world. Do you know God could have created us in such a way where we didn't need to eat? Robots don't need, need to eat. Angels don't need to eat, at least physical food. Right? And we would have been the exact same thing. We just would not eat. 
But when you eat, especially like if you, I love food. If you and I love flavorful food. You eat food, you're like, this is so good. I I love this, right? That that's just a total chesed. That's just a kindness of God. God gave us this whole panoply of, you know, sensory delight when it absolutely wasn't necessary. Taste and see that God is good. Look at, say it all the time, but it's so important. Kumquats. Why do we have kumquats? <laughs> this world would have been exactly the same without kumquats. And yet God just said, another variety. Right? Another fruit. Right? You've got grapes. You probably could have done without currants, right? <laughs> Close enough. We got cranberries. What do we need currants for? No, but God said, let there be currants. Because it's like God just was just just wanted to just throw out all these ingredients. Like beer? No. Hundreds of kinds of beer. Man. <laughs> right? Like, how about just one kind of beer? No. And as and 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 it says, taste and see that God is good. Again, this world could have been basically exactly the same in black and white. Right? Well, you would have never have complained about the absence of magenta or mauve. <laughs> right? You wouldn't have had the presumption to even imagine color if everything was black and white and all you knew was black and white. And yet, every imaginable color. Why? God didn't have to do it just to delight us, just because God is good. So, so, so that's essential. One can't believe in God unless one understands that God is more than just a power. God is this massively benevolent, benevolent source of blessing. Do you know... I heard from Reb Shlomo, he said in the name of the Rishner Rebbe, that it's an aspect of God's kindness that he even allows us to call him good. Meaning to say, and the example Reb Shlomo gave was, you know, the Rothschilds in, in their day were the richest family in the world. He said, can you imagine, you say, oh, the Rothschilds are so rich they have $100. Like, that's a, it's like... It's a silly statement because it doesn't even begin to, to articulate the amount of wealth that they have. The same problem comes with calling God good. God is not just good. God is so beyond, 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 beyond good that God does us a favor by allowing us to call him good. Okay. So now I want to get into this next idea in terms of, you know, one of the necessities, if we want to really believe in God, not just acknowledge a power, which is not belief in God. Um, We have to also understand that God loves us. Now, I want to kind of build to this and, and connect it. We've just left Egypt. We just got the Torah. So let's Let's just kind of build a structure around this. And I I, I want to spend a little time on this slide now. So, 
So we have a, I have a question. My question is the following. Why did God need to bring us, why did God need to split the city? Okay? Now it says, it says, and we read it every morning in the davening. It's a very amazing uh, verse from the Torah. It says that Israel saw the great hand that Hashem inflicted upon Egypt, and the people feared, the people feared Hashem, meaning they had awe of great awe of Hashem. And it says here, and they had faith in Hashem and in Moshe his servant. So, v'yaminu ba Hashem. So they had, we had faith in Hashem. So it's it's very, it's a very curious statement by the splitting of the Red Sea that all of a sudden the Torah calls out that the Jews believed in God. Why? Because we had just experienced ten plagues. We had seen God systematically dismantle every presumption of idol worship. So, theoretically, we already believed in God. So, if the purpose of the splitting of the Red Sea, as it says over here, that when the Red Sea split, we believed in God, well, why didn't we already believe in God? We had ten splittings of the Red Sea, so to speak. So the answer that I heard, that I, I really love, is that when we left Egypt, all the ten plagues, we thought that when God took us out of Egypt, we thought God owed it to us. He, owed, he had promised the Avos, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, he's going to take us out of Egypt. So we thought we have it coming. You see, when you think you have something coming, it doesn't mean that much to you. You know, a person wakes up in their teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, whatever it is, you wake up in the morning, you go, well, you know, I'm 30 years old, I'm 40 years old, of course I have another day coming to me. Really? Really? Of Really? Of course? Really? But when we live our lives like that, then you don't have vessels to receive the gift that's being given. Now what happened by the splitting of the Red Sea was all of a sudden we realized, wait a second, this is going above and beyond what God promised the Avos. God isn't just doing something because He promised them. Right now, God is saving us. And then we realized God loves us. That's, that was the defining moment. And when we realized God loves us, that opened up our hearts for us to really escalate the relationship and for us to really believe in God. Because now all of a sudden there was this massive, totally intimate, personal connection. Now, we're still in the middle of the thought here, but I want to take it a little bit further. Ask a new question. Which is, we get out of Egypt the first day of Pesach, right? And yet Pesach is seven days in Israel, or eight days outside of Israel. So my question is, what do you need the extra six days for, or seven days for? Okay, we get out of Egypt the first day. So if someone were to ask me, why is Pesach seven days? I'd go, what are you asking me for? I don't, I don't know, you know? Yeah, I get it, we get out the first day, so why is Pesach an extra six days longer? I don't know. God, God wanted it to be. 
Okay. I think we can all agree, not a great answer. <laughs> um, but now let's just think about it another second. What happens on the seventh day of Pesach? Right? The seventh day of Pesach is when the seas split. So since Pesach is the holiday of freedom, and, and Pesach is seven days long, and the, sea, and the sea split on the seventh day, obviously, we weren't saved until after that. Right? Okay, so now let's put all these thoughts together. So since, holiday, since Pesach is, is the holiday of freedom, and the sea split on the seventh day, and on the seventh day we realized God loves us, that means a person can't be free unless they understand that God loves them. So, why? Why, right? Because unless you, when you realize that you're loved, then you realize that you're, at least with that person, you realize that you're in a safe environment. If you know the person loves you, right? Then at least with that person, you're in a safe environment. But if you know that God loves you, and God runs the entire world, and God owns the entire world, then the whole world becomes a safe environment. And when you're in a world that's a safe environment, then you can be free. Then you can make proper decisions. You don't just live your entire life being incredibly reactive. Right? I'm only doing this because of that, and I'm only doing that because of this, and ah, I don't even know what I'm doing anymore because I'm too busy avoiding this and avoiding that. But if all of a sudden I'm living in a safe environment because I know God loves me and I, I believe in God and I, I believe God loves me, then all of a sudden the world becomes a safe environment. Now all of a sudden I can make decisions that are emanating from my soul. I shared this thought with one of the Holy Chavra, and he said back to me a Torah in the name of Rav Kook. He says, this Torah connects to what you're saying. He says that one of the ways that Rav Kook defines freedom is that a person is completely connected to their mission in this world. She says, that's a very intense idea. Like, what is your mission? And to what extent are you actually connected or connecting with your mission. And, and, and to a large extent, to the extent to which you're connecting with your mission, is the extent to which you're free. Right? Now I want to make sure that you don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I don't think that that means that, you know what? Therefore, whatever pleases me most is my mission. Right? So I have to, I'm only free if I'm only doing the things that please me the most. And then all of a sudden it becomes a very narcissistic spin on things. See, I think that that's where contemporary culture is at this point in time. It's become sort of this pleasureocracy. 
where uh, where we feel like unless we're tapping into pleasure on an ongoing basis, that somehow we've corrupted our innocence. <laughs> and it's this is, I think, a very destructive, a very destructive idea that's been pounded into our heads. Because remember, this world is a work session. We've got certain premises that sort of like go hand in hand with what we're learning right now. One of them is a, that it's a work session. Remember, how do we know that? How do we know that? Because we think that the Garden of Eden was this cosmic spa and that we blew it because we broke the house rules. Right? God said, don't eat from the tree. We ate from the tree. We blew it. Now we got to pay. But if you actually look in the Torah, before we eat from the tree of knowledge, before we blow it, so to speak, we have, Adam has a mitzvah to work and guard the garden. That's before he eats from the tree of knowledge, which means that the starting point was that it was a work session. And we know that to work and guard the garden, those two commandments one positive, one negative, were a microcosm of all 613 commandments. So we have the whole Torah to do. Okay, granted, it was only a couple of hours that he had to do it before Shabbos came. And had he done it before Shabbos came, that would have been the great Shabbos. Remember, the Messianic era, era is called Yom Shekulah Shabbos, the day that will be all Shabbos. And we would have gone right into the end of history. And so as Rabbi Green sort of pointed out so brilliantly, all of history since then, since the sixth day of creation, is one long Erev Shabbos. God has been extending Erev Shabbos for thousands of years, giving us opportunities to fix whatever it is we need to fix and do whatever, whatever it is we need to do to get back to the great Shabbos. So... So if we understand this premise that it's a work session and then we understand that we have a mission and we want to be completely connected to our mission, then the question is, okay, well, what can I do that's going to play to my talents, right? Because each of us has a different set of talents that we've been gifted with. What can I do to play to my talents and that in itself is inherently pleasurable because you're playing to your talents. It's doing what you're good at. But at the same time, not making it about me. At the same time, making it about how I can now contribute to the world with my talents. There's that extra step there. Right? Because usually we just stop at the step that it's just like, it's just about me. You're also included in the process. We also have to make sure that what we're doing takes advantage of the gifts that we have. And when we do that, whatever we will do in terms of our service will be, by definition, pleasurable. Because we're playing to our own strengths. But it just doesn't stop at the me part. So... So there's a lot. There's a lot. There's a lot going on. 
You know, I want to, just because we talked about the tree, I want to throw in one more deep idea that I've been wanting to share. It's a, it's a new thought from what we've been saying, but, you know, God is one, so everything connects, but it's, 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 a, it's getting back to this me idea. So there's a little ambiguity as to which was the tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden. So I want to share with you something that the Moor of Hashemish says, because it's like it's 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 like one of these like great headline ideas. So listen to this. He says, you know, you know which was the tree of knowledge? Every single tree in the Garden of Eden. If we ate from it with taiva. Taiva means lust. And I'm gonna make I'm gonna define these terms some more. So don't run out of the room screaming yet. <laughs> Lust is a problem. Passion is great. Passion is great. We like passion. We want passion. Lust is something else. What is what is lust? Lust means when your body is controlling your soul. Right? Passion is when your soul is really controlling your body. (laughs) Very different ideas. Right? One should go through all of life and all of life's activities with passion. means you're engaging in this world in a fiery, wonderful way. But you're doing it from the standpoint of the soul calling the shots, not the body calling the shots. So now, let's revisit this idea again. Which tree was actually the tree of knowledge? Every single tree in the... If you ate with taiva. Meaning to say, if it was our body dictating our choices, there was no right answer. But if it's our soul controlling our body, then it says, God says, eat from all the fruits in the garden. So, like I say, this is a headline idea because, um, you know, a person can ask themselves, like, at certain moments in their life, who is in control right now? Is it my soul or is it my body? Right? And, and this, is, this, is, this is something that we can think about when we make choices in our life. Right? And obviously not so simple. Even if you understand that it's your body, then it's, it's not, not, not so simple then to control yourself necessarily. But at least you're thinking more clearly. At least you're thinking more clearly. Um, okay, so let's just wrap it up. And again, let's just return back to the, to the main point, which is it's not enough to say, I believe in God, 
And then that means the definition of I believe in God means that I just believe in just a, a creator. Because belief in a creator alone can include all sorts of other ideas that are completely anti-Torah and anti-life. Right? Which is that God is out to get me, that God is a cruel God, that God is a punishing God. Right? The Torah understanding of God, and therefore of belief in God, if we want to believe in the, in, 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 in the God that's actually here, is to understand God's goodness, to understand that God loves us, and to understand that God has a plan for us. Right? Because this idea of the plan is very important. Reb Shlomo emphasized this very much, because... When we left Egypt, basically the first thing that we got was the Torah. The Torah was the plan for life. In other words, and this is another problem that's a, a, a crippling problem in, in contemporary society, which is, thank God we have so much food and we have so much wealth and so much bounty that, that a person can become, um, have so much free time that they actually become paralyzed by the number of options and the number of choices that they have because they're not focused on running away from the saber-toothed tiger that wants to rip them into pieces or they're not focused on getting their next meal. So therefore, it's sort of like, what am I going to do with all my time? And so people become actually paralyzed by freedom. And so the answer is, again, if a person wants to be free, if a person really wants to lock into the Creator, they also have to understand that they need a plan and that God has a plan for us. And, and that is the Torah. And, you know, we were talking about it a little bit last week, but I want to make the point again. And I heard it from Rabbi Aaron the, the first time. A very, very central idea, especially when you talk with people who aren't quote-unquote religious. By the way, we don't believe in religion. We believe in reality. We just say this is reality. We don't believe that there's reality and then, oh, also we believe in this. No, this, we, it's either true or it's not true. We say this is true, that this is accurate. So, so Rabbi Aaron pointed out something very wonderful, which is that Everyone believes in something. Everyone has a system of belief. So you can call it religion if you like. Or you can call it whatever it is. You talk to someone who says, I am not religious. And then you say to them, um, would you kick an old lady in the face? What are you talking about? Of course I wouldn't kick an old lady in the face. Why? Because that's the wrong thing to do. Oh, so you believe in right and wrong. <laughs> Yes. And who, who decides what's right and what's wrong? Well, I do. Okay, so you have your own system of beliefs. <laughs> it's very clear. It's very obvious. Every single person does. Every single person in the world does, by the way. Some people will believe some crazy stuff while they're telling you they don't believe in religion. <laughs> Everyone is making their own religion. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's just most people are not conscious of the fact that they're doing it. 
And again, most people are thinking about a very limited number of things their entire life. Sex, food, money, right? Basically, Rabbi Nachman talks about this, that these are the three main things that people throughout humanity have tried to grapple with, the three main forces that it's very hard to kind of control, basically. So, basically, people are going to be thinking about the same basic things in different ways throughout their life, and then they're going to come up with a system of ideas based on these things. So then the question is, do you want to go through the rest of your life just making up your own version of this? <laughs> or do you want to tap into what we believe is, 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 is actually an incredibly amazing treasure chest of a system to address all of these things? You know, I heard... Um, the Rabbi um, Solomon, the uh, the Mashkiach of the spiritual sort of like guide of the Lakewood Yeshiva, I heard him speak one time, and he said that he and his wife were looking at this booklet that came with a blender that they bought, and it was a 32-page booklet for a blender, and he said, "Look, look, look! A blender comes with a set of instructions." Do you think the world doesn't come with a set of instructions? Kind of a big, big question. I don't know yeah. if, uh, but uh, in terms of the Ten Commandments, do yeah. you know of any uh, any meditations that one can do? Either one on an individual commandment or one for all ten. Um, is that is that part of our, our, our practice to 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 weave some kind of meditative? Um, yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. I. I, I saw this. I saw this in a book. I, I, I'm forgetting who who said it. I'm sorry, but he talked about how you know a very Jewish form of meditation is actually a, is 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 Torah study itself. So so in other words, let's say you sit with a sefer, right, and with a book. And you can have a book, say, on the subject of the Ten Commandments, or maybe you have the, the Chumash, the Torah, open to the page where it is. And you just read the commentary, read the words, and it's going to give you an idea, like one of the statements. And then just close your eyes and think about it, and think deeply about it, and allow your thoughts to really try to comprehend what that lofty thought is. And that can take you to amazing places. And it's absolutely a form of meditation. It's absolutely a form of meditation, but it's it's a very it's a very exalted form of Torah study. Um, the fact that the sea split on the um, on the seventh day of Pesach is that, do you think that's why Hashem made that a Yom Tov? Yeah. So I yeah. So that's absolutely. I th that's kind of what I was saying. That that um, that therefore. In other words, if Pesach, if Pesach is celebrating us being taken out of Egypt, yeah, yeah. and the sea splits on the seventh day, yeah. that suggests to me that we're not taken out of Egypt until the sea split, and we saw... Remember, one of the aspects of the sea splitting was after we crossed through the end, we saw 
all the Egyptians drowned, basically. We saw there, it says, we saw one of the miracles, there were many, many miracles by the splitting of the sea. One of them was that our oppressors flew up in the air and then landed back down into the sea. So I've seen different commentaries that talk about how psychologically, if you've left a negative place, but you still know that your oppressor is out there, a lot of times you don't have closure and you can't 